0: anytime you sing a song in church or hear a Christian song on the radio, you should try to see if you can identify a passage of Scripture behind that song. This song is based on a little verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, which tells us that all the promises God made find their yes in Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment. He's the one who keeps them. He is literally the embodiment the actual physical incarnation of every good promise that God made us. This morning, we're going to look into the book of Hebrews. I'm going to answer the question, and I tell you the favorite thing of what Jesus is doing for us. First, let's pray. Lord, we are grateful to be able to sing. We sing in worship of You. We sing in awe of You. Songs themselves, Lord, can teach us a whole lot about You. Thank you, Lord, for the families, the new people I've met this morning. I pray for those who have come for the umpteenth time, Lord, but they're tired, they're discouraged. They need to hear from you. Thank you also for the guests for the first time, the first time, or may they feel welcomed and loved among us, and may you be praised, God, because you can take care of every single one of us, man and woman, adult elderly, child, all of us, Lord, all of our different capacities, all of our different needs. You can love us individually and care for us and speak to us, and I pray that you would as we learn what you do for us at every moment. Thank you, Lord Jesus. I pray in your name. Amen. We are in the book of Hebrews this morning. We've been on a journey theologically. The normal approach to Bible teaching in this church it's not mandatory, it's not commanded to be done exactly this way in Scripture at all times. There's all kinds of different Bible teaching in the Bible itself. But generally speaking, what we do is we choose the book of the Bible and we move straight through it. Sometimes we take a very long time in a single book of the Bible and we weave two or three books or two or three different sections of the Bible together. This series has been different Because of things I heard, controversies that arose among Christians, questions I was being asked, it dawned on me that a helpful way to teach all of us the Bible for a season would be to teach doctrine itself. In other words, to take the big topics of Scripture and to arrange them topic by topic. That's what doctrinal teaching is. It arranges God's truth by topic. What, for instance, does God say about Himself? Who is God? Is it true that we are all God? Is it true as a major world religion would have us do in Hinduism to bow to one another and salute the divine spark that is inside each one of us? What is humanity? When I was in high school in Mexico, I had an actual Marxist and militant atheist philosophy professor who did his best for several years continuing on into college to chip away and destroy my faith." His argument was that the only reason that the continued plight of humanity was as bad as it is, is that not enough people had received good enough education. He sincerely believed with all of his heart, if we can extend enough quality education to enough people, we can create something like a utopia on earth. Because man himself is essentially good. He just needs to be educated out of his frailty, out of his selfishness. Well, that's, that's a stance. That's a belief. Is that true? Doctrinal teaching addresses that. So far, we've looked at the doctrine of Scripture. We've looked at the doctrine of God Himself, that God exists as Trinity. And for the last few weeks, we've been studying carefully what Jesus is, who Jesus is, rather, and what Jesus does. And today I'm giving my final answer. It's not all I could tell you. That would take probably uh, the rest of the year, but I want to give the best and to me the most comforting answer of the question that I was asked when I was a Bible college student by that great Scottish preacher and theologian, Ken Connolly. I told you, called the church office when I was just a sprout on staff and said, Bruce, where is Jesus and what is he doing right now? I found the answer. There's one dominant answer of all the things that Jesus does. One stands out the most clearly in Scripture. It is not the only thing that Jesus does. I shared a couple of them with you last week. This week I will share my favorite because maybe like you, I've had a little bit of an unpleasant week. Have you had an unpleasant week in any form? Has it just been amazing for all of you? You're a lot more fortunate than the first service. I asked that question at the first service, and there was this kind of wave of agreement that, yeah, that generally speaking, the week was kind of terrible. If yours wasn't, good for you. Congratulations. Maybe give us lessons. Uh, Tell me how you did it. But I had some unpleasant moments this week. So this truth that I'm going to share with you from the book of Hebrews intermittently comforted me all week long. It only did so intermittently because I very often, I say this to my own embarrassment as a confession, I often stopped thinking, stopped evidently believing the very thing I was studying. Every time my mind came back to what I'm about to share with you I felt God's peace, I found courage, I found hope, I found life. As my mind drifted from the promises of God and the present work of Jesus on my behalf, and I started focusing my attention on myself, I could feel my spirits drop. Think about it, if I'm thinking about myself, no wonder I'm depressed, right? A lot of problems represented up here in front of this pulpit. The book of Hebrews gives us the primary answer of what Jesus is doing for us. The trouble is, the book of Hebrews requires us to go back in time and culture quite a great distance. Let me tell you about it. I have in weeks past, so I won't belabor it, but let me remind you why the book of Hebrews was written. It was almost certainly a sermon. It's circulating as an epistle, but it appears to be a sermon that was reduced to writing. It has that strange, ancient-sounding name, Hebrews, because it was addressed to Jewish believers and Jewish skeptics and Jewish investigators of Christ in the first century. The testimony of Jesus and the testimony of the apostles is that in Jesus, God had kept His final and best promise to send a Messiah, send a Savior for Israel, who would be God with them who would keep all of God's law, who would stand in the gap between a holy God and His sinful people, and He would be the payment for their sins. He would be their good shepherd. He would be their redeemer. He would be their advocate. He would one day rule over them. That message had been given very clearly, so clearly that many, many Jewish believers in the first century had sprouted up not only in Jerusalem but all across the Roman Empire. Some biblical scholars, if memory serves, estimate that as many as one half of the people in Jerusalem had become Christians by the time the apostles were done preaching there and were driven out by Roman persecution. If you read the book of Acts, the apostles are named angrily by their opponents as people who turned the whole world upside down. The witness to Jesus, the witness about Jesus from these first believers, from Jesus' first disciples, from his apostles, had really changed the landscape of the known world at that time. And because of that, persecution had begun to rear its ugly head and had started crushing crashing down through social pressure, through government restrictions on these Jewish believers. The persecution had grown so intense that though they had not yet been martyred, that was still in the near future, they were really starting to pay a price for it. And many of them, under social pressure, have done what Christians throughout history have done and through many who are not yet Christians have done, they've taken a step back. They had the temple. They had the synagogue. They had the law and the prophets and the psalms read to them Sabbath by Sabbath. They have a priesthood. They have traditions. They have family gatherings. They have meals to remember their history. They're acculturated into Judaism. So many of them are thinking about Not taking another step with Jesus, stepping back from trusting Him, not trusting in Him at all. And Hebrews, from start to finish, is a long warning and encouragement to not do that. It is the preaching of Jesus. Again, I think it's a sermon saying that Jesus, the one you've been trusting or the one you've at least been considering, He's it, He's the one. He's the one God promised. The prophets themselves say so. Everything in our history teaches us that we can't save ourselves. He's the only one who can. He's the only one who will. If you don't trust Him, you're completely out of God's favor. No one else is coming. No other offer, no other escape is possible. Stick with Jesus. Hold on. We're going to read in a moment. Hold on to your confession. You've confessed, some of you publicly, you've named yourselves as Christians, you've expressed your personal trust in Jesus, hang on to it. But from first chapter to last, the argument of Hebrews is that Jesus is just better, that he's superior. He's greater than the angels, he's greater than Moses. He's greater than Aaron, their first and great high priest. He's better in every way. So if you step away from him, you're lost. That is the argument of Hebrews, and it's a hard reading because it deals so much with culture and Scripture that Jews knew very well. We're overhearing someone's sermon dedicated to people, preached and written to people from a culture very unlike our own. I want you to keep that in mind because all we're going to be reading about in the few verses I'm going to share with you regards the priesthood. Why the priesthood? Because Israel lived permanently in a priesthood, a permanent reminder that they themselves and their sinfulness were not acceptable to God and for that matter neither was their priest. Their priest, even their high priest, offered continually sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of Israel. In all of the furnishings of the temple, beautiful and immaculate as it was furnished in the original and later in the temple that Herod built, all of it was beautiful, but one piece of missing furniture in the temple was a chair. The priest, all the priests, including the high priest, were permanently standing, a visual reminder that their work would never be done until God sent the Messiah. And that is the book of Hebrews, and that leads us into what Jesus is doing for us now. And the answer, as I told you last week, everything that Jesus is doing for us, the answer is always found in his resurrection and what Jesus is doing for you right now at this very moment while you listen to me preach, while you read your Bible or your mind drifts to the traffic beside us, or you ask yourself, isn't he getting a little hot since he doesn't have shade as I do? No, I'm fine. Thank you very much. Whatever you're doing, whether you're focused or not, here is what Jesus is doing for you. Jesus is interceding for you. Jesus is speaking to the Father on your behalf. In simpler language, what is Jesus doing right now? Jesus is praying for you. It's amazing. And it is one of the main themes in the book of Hebrews. Look with me, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. Here's the priestly talk. Here's the superiority of Jesus. Hebrews 7, verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood, how? Permanently. He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. That's the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus will always be a priest unto God, a priest in our favor because he died once and will never die again. His life goes on forever. Read it again. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost. Very interesting phrase. If you're the kind to underline in your Bible and to make notes, this is worth noting. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to do what? To make intercession for them. Let me be crystal clear. If you have come to God through the name and trusting in the work, the death and the resurrection of His Son, what Jesus is doing for you right now is interceding for you. If you have not yet put your trust in Christ, He's not doing that for you. Not yet. Jesus always lives. Jesus eternally lives from this point forward. To save to the uttermost, and I'll talk to you about what that phrase means. To save completely, to save utterly, to save at every moment all of those who draw near to God through Him. If you're still investigating Jesus, if you're like these persecuted Jews in the first century who have not yet made up their mind about Jesus, This is a picture and a promise of what Jesus will do for you, but he will only begin to intercede for you. He will only be your advocate. He will only be your priest. He will only be your satisfaction before a holy and righteous God at the moment you draw near to God through him. It says here that Jesus always lives to make intercession for them. The point that the author of Hebrews is making is he is the only one we will ever need. We will never need another priest. We will never need another advocate. There is no human being. There is no saint. There is no one else beside Jesus or necessary other than Jesus. He is the one we need. Look at this passage again, please. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. He's talking to actual people in the first century. If they were elderly or had memory of what their parents and their grandparents had told them about the priesthood, they probably could have named two or three or four great high priests that they had. They remembered with fondness perhaps some of the priests that had represented them in the temple once a year going into the Holy of Holies. The author of Hebrews says we've needed a lot of these men because they're continually dying. Jesus is different. Because he rose from the dead, because he lives forever, he has taken up the priesthood and he's done it permanently. It's one of the many limitations, the many differences between Jesus and anybody else who would represent him. Secondly, he's the only one who can do this for people. Look at what it says in the next two verses. It was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Let me read you again who Jesus is. He functions as a high priest. In other words, as someone who offers a sacrifice, who stands between people sinful people, and a holy God, and here is what He is like. He is holy. He is innocent. He is unstained. He is separated from sinners, and He is exalted above the heavens. Let me ask you, have you ever known anybody like that? Have you? No. I'm not a priest. I'm a pastor. The reason for that is Jesus is the priest. But even though I'm not a priest, people who didn't grow up in church and don't know much about it have really, it's become clear to me over the years of being a pastor, have really strange ideas of what a pastor or a priest or a member of the clergy is and does. I guess we seem, I don't know, weird for sure, otherworldly maybe. This really came home to me for the first time years ago when I was in Bible college, I had shared the gospel with a man who's still in our church all these years later. He'd had a pretty rough upbringing. He'd, been, he'd suffered some abuse at the hands of religious people, so he's suspicious of God, and anybody who spoke of him seemed to know anything or care about God or present themselves publicly as someone who could talk about God. So it's really a miracle, as it always is, that Jesus saved him. But he was still suspicious, and he still found this whole thing very strange, so we, dis- we started a process that we could call biblically discipleship. We just started meeting once a week, and I started teaching in the basics of reading his Bible, praying to God the basics of his newfound faith in Christ. And I'll never forget the first question he asked me. We went to lunch at one of the good Mexican joints here in Huntington Beach, and right in the middle of the chips and salsa, he leaned across and said, Bruce, I have a question. Yes, of course. What is it? He looked at me with utter sincerity and said, are you ever, like, tempted? Yeah, you're laughing because you know me. You know the answer. He didn't. I said, yes, of course, constantly, every day, all kinds of stuff. And he sagged back in the booth and said, oh, thank goodness, you're human. (laughs) That's the very point of the Son of God becoming an actual ordinary human being as I'm going to show you. He stood in our place. He lived our actual experience. All of our human frailties, including suffering, every temptation, just as we do. And yet, because He's the Son of God, because He's God who took on a human nature, look who He is. He's a high priest who is holy, who is innocent who is unstained, who is separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. There's absolutely no one like him. No one you've ever met. No pastor, no priest, no one who knows Jesus well. However well they know him is in any way very much like him because he is so superior. The whole point of you being given the life of Christ is for you to become like Christ. I was praising you and encouraging you earlier because I've seen so many of you act like Jesus and grow into the likeness of Jesus. But compared to Jesus, it will literally take heaven to make us as He is because He is Listen to it again. He's holy. He's innocent. He's unstained. He's separated from sinners. He, he's exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests who offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this. He offered a sacrifice, in other words, once for all when he offered up, what? Himself. Jesus is so superior that He's not only the priest, He's not only the final, the best, and the only priest, He's also the sacrifice. Though He had no sins of His own, He brought Himself to the Father. That's why He's able to intercede for us. That's why it says in the first passage I read you that He will save us to the uttermost because He always lives to intercede for us. He will save us completely and at all times. That's what it means when it says to the uttermost. I'm in Hebrews chapter 7. I'm in verse 25. Let me read it to you again. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Why is Jesus able to completely and absolutely and at all times save the people who trust Him because He's always interceding for us? There's absolutely no one like Him. The person who loves you most, your biggest fan, your chief advocate doesn't always intercede for you. For one thing, they get tired. They physically rest. They get tired of you too, I don't know if you've noticed. The people who love you most on earth get a little tired of you, need to go for a drive, need to go to the grocery store by themselves need some time to turn off the lights and turn on the fan and be left alone. This high priest, he is nearer to you than you can even imagine. So near to you that the eternal, uncreated Son of God became a human being, took your actual place, took your actual nature Upon Himself added to His divine nature a human nature so that He could understand not only from the point of view of the Creator but through actual human experience every one of your temptations, every one of your frailties, every bit of your human limitation up to and including thirst and hunger and suffering and yes, even death. And then He took His life back and returned to the Father who sent Him And sits enthroned at the right hand of God to rule, as I told you last week, and as he rules, what he is continually doing is saving you to the uttermost. Here's a question for you, Christian. When do you need saving? Oh, it got quiet. That was a good question. When do you need saving? All the time. See, we speak, and this is good biblical language. He got saved. As if it were a one moment in time, never to be repeated, never needed again. No, He is able to save us to the uttermost, meaning... That, he, that Greek phrase meaning he is able to save us completely. He is able to save us at all times, at every moment, in your frailty, in your weakness, in your sinfulness, you have a high priest who not only understands you, in his understanding of you, he loves you, and because he knows your need of him and your need of grace, he is continually interceding for you. That's why Hebrews goes on to say, This in Hebrews chapter 4. Notice now we're back going back three chapters. This is how strongly the idea of priesthood runs through the book of Hebrews. Listen to the practical effect of what I just told you. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Because this high priest isn't going into the Holy of Holies, not on earth. He's going into the very throne room of God. He's not passing behind a veil made by other human hands. No, this high priest has passed through the heavens. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. In other words, let's keep claiming him. Let's keep owning our Christianity. Let's keep being unashamed of our trust in him. That's what a confession is. Here's the encouragement. Here's the reason why we hold fast to Jesus even when and especially when it gets tough to do so. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Read verse 16 with me. There's what we're supposed to do with all this. Hebrews 4:16. Will you read it with me? The Bible says, Let us then... With confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Listen. Using the picture of the holy of holies, the author of Hebrews here is taking an earthly thing that they were very familiar with the Holy of Holies, the place where the great high priest and even he could only go in once a year. And he saying the final high priest, the real high priest, the priest that was sent not from a human family that you could meet and have lunch with, but the one who was sent by God himself, he passed through the heavens. And though he came from the heavens and returned to the Father, he knows all about you all your weaknesses, all your frailty, all of your temptations. He understands it because he lived it, but he did it without sin. So now you can do something extraordinary. You can draw near to the throne of a holy, righteous God who knows everything about you, who knows every half-hearted, every wrong sinful selfish shameful thing the god who knows all about you the throne of his authority has been changed for you it is now a throne of did you notice how the throne of god is described here it's a throne of what of grace wow why because Jesus went there for you. Now you can go with confidence to the throne of grace and there you can receive mercy and you can always find grace to help in the time of need. Let me make this as personal as I can for you. The same book of Hebrews that I'm reading to you talks in another place about a besetting or an entangling sin, sin that clings closely to us. Does that make sense to you? Don't tell anybody else. Don't react. Because if you do this with me, if you take this little journey with me and you try to make the Word of God very practical, this is going to be, it's going to be pretty intimate. It's going to be vulnerable. It can be kind of intense for you. If there is a besetting sin, if there is a sin that continually entangles people, do you know what yours is? Is there a habit, a defect in your character, something that continually trips you up? Is there something about you, the way you think, the things you do? the secret life that you live because we all have a secret life? Are there things in that secret life that would absolutely wreck you with embarrassment if it were known by others, even the people who love you the most? You got that? That entangling sin, Jesus endured the temptation to that very thing He was tempted in His human nature far more strongly than you ever have been because temptations are a little bit like ocean waves. If you're not very strong, it doesn't take much to knock you over. Jesus was tempted in all ways just as we are. We can read of occasions in his life at the beginning of his ministry and in his final hours where Jesus was tempted and accosted by Satan himself. In other words, the very worst things in your human nature were not present in the human nature of Jesus, but those same solicitations to sin, to trust himself, to put himself first, to lie, to get outside the Father's plan, to indulge himself rather than obey the Father. And those simple phrases describe every kind of sin that you and I have ever indulged in. Jesus felt that fully, but he endured it without sin. And he's not unsympathetic because he knows what it feels like. He knows everything about it except what it feels like to be defeated by sin. He triumphed over sin. He took your besetting sin and crushed it with his righteous obedience. And then He took all of His righteousness and presented it to the Father, and that's why the throne of God is now to you a throne of grace, and that's why there you can find mercy and you can find grace to help you in your time of need. In other words, when you're falling short, when you don't know what to do, when you've done the stupid, sinful, embarrassing, shameful thing for the 10,000th time, and you think there's no more hope for you, and if Jesus is anything like the pastor says, and He actually knows all about you. There's no way He could possibly love you because you know full well who you are. Jesus knows all of that and more, and He loves you still, and so does the Father. And Jesus, in light of your great need, saves you to the uttermost, and one of the ways He does it continually is not only did He die for you, not only did He rise from the dead for you to give you His own eternal life. Even now, at this very moment, Jesus is praying for you. Amazing. Now, one question, because it's inevitable, and I often hear this misrepresented, or at least pastors use careless language to give people the bad impre- a bad impression, a bad and unbiblical impression. I think if we could examine what most of us who came to church to Crosspoint in these two services actually think about God, if people were crystal clear and verbalized their actual beliefs or at least their feelings about God, it would sound something like this. Jesus loves me, but the Father, He kind of tolerates me. I know Jesus loves me because they taught me a song about it when I was a child. Jesus loves me, this I know. You know the song? We'll sing it before we go home, okay? But the Father, because He's holy, because He's righteous, because as the same book of Hebrews says, all things are naked and exposed to the sight of Him to whom we must give an account. The Son loves me. The Father, He's a lot like an earthly father. He's kind of drumming his celestial fingers in impatience, saying, you again? So, here's the question. Does the fact that Jesus always lives to make intercession for the people who'd come to the Father through Him, does this mean that God the Father is always upset with us and needs constant reminding by Jesus not to condemn us? Because I've actually heard preaching that sounds almost like that. The father is on his throne with a lightning bolt in his hand, just barely holding off the urge to smite you. But the only reason he does it is because the son is enthroned beside him saying, Father, please remember, I died for them. And he needs persuading and he needs convincing and he needs reminding. If you entertain that kind of thought, you'll never really love your father fully because it's hard to fully love someone you know is barely putting up with you. Here's the truth and take it from Jesus. Listen to Jesus in John 16, just before dying. Jesus said in John chapter 16, the Father Himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come… I came from the Father and have come into the world and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Focus on and believe that first phrase, the Father Himself loves you. The Father Himself loves you because you have loved me and you have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and I've come into the world and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. And by the way, why why is He returning to the Father? To intercede for you, to pray for you. Let's put these two ideas together. Jesus is interceding for you because the Father loves you. He doesn't read reminding. He doesn't need persuading. The Father himself loves you. And Father sends the Son. The Son dies for sin and sinners. The Son takes his life back, gives eternal life to all who trust him, and lives even now continually praying for people who trust him, all because the Father loves us. Jesus is interceding for us because God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loves us. And here's the final step, because this has all been literally otherworldly. I mean, we've been in the highest and holiest place of heaven. We've been talking about the throne of God. We've been talking about an uncreated, eternal God, loving, little, old, mortal, sinful, frail us. Here's the question. So what? How can this possibly help you? What difference will this make for you? Here's three very simple ideas that I want you to take home to face your difficult week with the knowledge that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit love you. Here's the first thing. Jesus prays for you even when you don't pray at all. I've been asking Christians who are farther ahead of me in following Jesus... For 20 years about their prayer life. I've never had anybody say, I'm satisfied with my prayer life. It seems that the holier, the better, the more sincere the Christian, the quicker they are to admit their weakness in prayer how often they forget to pray, how often they get distracted in prayer, how often they grow discouraged in prayer. It's a real struggle. It is comforting to me, and it should be comforting to you to know that Jesus is praying for you even when you don't pray at all. When you're not paying any attention to God, when you, in a manner of speaking, have dethroned God from the throne of your life, and insisted on running your own show and doing whatever you want, when your motives are rotten and even when your good deeds aren't quite right because you're doing the right thing for the wrong reason, and you're doing the right thing so that other people will say, did you notice he did the right thing? What a wonderful person that is. When you're doing all of that at Every moment, including while you rest and your human frailty has lulled you into sleep, at every and every moment, Jesus is praying for you. I can't begin to tell you what it did for me as I came out here to preach to know that the entire time I'm preaching... However it's going, good or bad, whether I'm making sense or not, whether I'm going, getting through to the congregation or not, at every moment Jesus is praying for me and Jesus is praying for you. That's why you're saved to the uttermost. Listen to Robert Murray McShane, a saint from a couple hundred years ago, reflect on this. McShane wrote, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. You imagine what it might be like to hear Jesus praying for you? That's quite a word picture. If Jesus, hidden from your sight, were in the next room, but praying so loudly with the door open that you could hear his praise for, prayers for you, McShane could say, if I could hear him pray for me, I wouldn't fear a million enemies. But here's the blessed thing, distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. He's praying for me in the best place, the throne room of God, at the right hand of His Father. He is praying to the Father who already loves me, who in fact loved me so much that He sent the Son for me. Go back to Romans 8. Read it for yourself. Romans chapter 8, listen. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, with Jesus, graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is left to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed, present tense, is interceding for us. He died. That's history. He rose. That's history. He is interceding for us. That's happening right now. So, Paul, in the midst of his own persecution, with the scars and the cost reflected on his own body, says from his own suffering, "'Who shall separate us from the love of Christ?' Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? In other words, if they starve us, if they kill us, if our family abandons us, if we go hungry, if they murder us, will that separate us from the love of Christ? That was the experience of the first century church. That's why it says, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, Paul says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Read the rest of the passage with me from verse 38. Paul wrote, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What do you have? You have the love of Christ. That's in the first part. What do you have? You have the love of God in Christ. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit love you, and that means you can always come to God with complete confidence. You are a creation of God, you are a servant of God, but much more blessedly, through the sacrifice, death, resurrection, and intercession of His Son, you are a beloved child of God, and the only people who can enter the throne room with utter confidence are the King's kids. Everybody else needs an appointment. Everybody else goes in with a cringing respect that if they say or do the wrong thing in an ancient throne room, they'll be cast right out of there, maybe out of the kingdom, maybe out of life itself. We can come to the throne room of God knowing that the throne for us is a throne of grace where we will find mercy, meaning favor we don't deserve in God's great love. And you never have to wonder if you are accepted or heard or loved. Those of us with besetting sins, and I'm sure that's each and every one of us, if we're humble and honest with ourselves, there are things we're tired of doing. They are where, there are ways we are tired of acting. They are things we are tired of being. And that has created in us the impression that God is a little tired of us and that He's going to save us but barely. And we're going to get to heaven and He's going to say, well, about time, you didn't do me much good while you were on earth. Somehow in God's great grace, all of your failures, all of your sin, all of your frailty is absorbed by the saving life of his son who lives even now to intercede for you. So yes, you are accepted. Yes, you always will be heard, even when you're wrong, even when you're a mile off, even when you're utterly selfish, even in those moments. Not only will Jesus hear you, Jesus will intercede for you. And at all times and in all ways, you'll only know how well and how completely once we get to heaven, in all moments you are loved. You are saved to the uttermost because Jesus is always praying for you. Let's pray together and let's pray to Him. While I pray aloud, I just want you to think of one great glorious truth. Because Jesus is the Son of God, while you pray to Him, while I pray to Him, He will be praying for each of us. He'll be presenting in love His intercession, His person, His advocacy to His Father who already loved us. That's why it says God shows His love toward us in this way. He sent His Son to die for us while we were still sinners. That's how loved you are. Jesus, I thank You that even as we've navigated through these hard passages this whole time, this entire time you've been praying for us. When we're prayerless and sinful, you are ever interceding and perfectly holy and righteous, and you give all that righteousness permanently, eternally, in our place so that we will always be accepted and loved, not tolerated, but cherished, beloved, Scripture says amazing things, like you you sing songs over us because you love us. If there's a single person here who doesn't know you as Savior, I pray that they would turn to you right now. And friend, if there is, if you're watching online or you're here in the tent, Jesus is the only one who can save you. I trust I made that clear. If you don't know Him, turn to Him and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. Give me Your grace. Please forgive my sins. Make these promises that this man's been talking about. Make them true for me. And he will. And if you do, let us know. Send us a text. Send me an email. Let us know with the card that's in your bulletin. Please, if you don't know Christ, come to him for intercession. Come to him for his substitution, for his life lived in your place, and he'll save you. It's not about you. It never has been. It's always and only Jesus. Jesus. Christian, if you have all this, he's already gone ahead of you. He's already in heaven giving you the assurance that you'll be there with him someday, always and only living to intercede for you. Lord Jesus, thank you. If there's a single person here who doesn't know you, I pray that today they would be saved and they would let us know and that the rest of us would go forward into this week, which may be difficult, with the absolute confidence that whatever we face whatever we do, whatever they do to us, you will always be praying for us. Thank you. We love you. In Christ's name I pray. Crosspoint said, amen. How much does he love you? He prays for you. We're always looking for people to pray for us. That's good. We're told to do that. If no one else prays for you, if you have no words to pray for yourself, go forward this week with the confidence that Jesus is praying for you. If you're new to our church, I'd love to get acquainted. I'll be on the, on the church porch. I'll meet you over there, and I'll walk you over to this new cool little room we call the living room. God bless you. Thank you for joining us for worship. Remember, next week, where are we? We're back in the house, baby. We are the church, but we're going back in the building. God bless you. Love you. Bye-bye. Anytime you sing a song in church or hear a Christian song on the radio, you should try to see if you can identify a passage of Scripture behind that song. This song is based on a little verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 which tells us that all the promises God made find their yes in Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment. He's the one who keeps them. He is literally the embodiment, the actual physical incarnation of every good promise that God made us. This morning we're going to look into the book of Hebrews I'm going to answer the question I tell you the favorite thing of what Jesus is doing for us. First, let's pray. Lord, we are grateful to be able to sing. We sing in worship of you. We sing in awe of you. Songs themselves, Lord, can teach us a whole lot about you. Thank you, Lord, for the families, the new people I've met this morning. I pray for those who have come for the umpteenth time, Lord, but they're tired, they're discouraged. They need to hear from you. Thank you also for the guests for the first time, the first time, or may they feel welcomed and loved among us. And may you be praised, God, because you can take care of every single one of us, man and woman, adult, elderly, child, all of us, Lord all of our different capacities, all of our different needs. You can love us individually and care for us and speak to us, and I pray that You would as we learn what You do for us at every moment. Thank You, Lord Jesus. I pray in Your name. Amen. We are in the book of Hebrews this morning. We've been on a journey theologically. The normal approach to Bible teaching in this church it's not mandatory, it's not commanded to be done exactly this way in Scripture at all times. There's all kinds of different Bible teaching in the Bible itself. But generally speaking, what we do is we choose the book of the Bible and we move straight through it. Sometimes we take a very long time in a single book of the Bible and we weave two or three books or two or three different sections of the Bible together. This series has been different. Because of things I heard, controversies that arose among Christians, questions I was being asked, it dawned on me that a helpful way to teach all of us the Bible for a season would be to teach doctrine itself. In other words, to take the big topics of Scripture and to arrange them topic by topic. That's what doctrinal teaching is it arranges God's truth by topic. What, for instance, does God say about himself? Who is God? Is it true that we are all God? Is it true, as a major world religion would have us do in Hinduism, to bow to one another and salute the divine spark that is inside each one of us? What is humanity? When I was in high school in Mexico, I had an actual Marxist and militant atheist philosophy professor who did his best for several years, continuing on into college, to chip away and destroy my faith. His argument was that the only reason that the continued plight of humanity was as bad as it is is that not enough people had received good enough education. He sincerely believed with all of his heart if we can extend enough quality education to enough people, we can create something like a utopia on earth. Because man himself is essentially good, he just needs to be educated out of his frailty, out of his selfishness. Well, that's, that's a stance. That's a belief. Is that true? Doctrinal teaching addresses that. So far, we've looked at the doctrine of Scripture. We've looked at the doctrine of God Himself, that God exists as Trinity. And for the last few weeks, we've been studying carefully what Jesus is, who Jesus is, rather, and what Jesus does. And today, I'm giving my final answer. It's not all I could tell you. That would take probably Uh, the rest of the year, but I want to give the best and to me the most comforting answer of the question that I was asked when I was a Bible college student by that great Scottish preacher and theologian, Ken Connolly. I told you, called the church office when I was just a sprout on staff and said, Bruce, where is Jesus and what is He doing right now? I found the answer. There's one dominant answer of all the things that Jesus does one stands out the most clearly in Scripture. It is not the only thing that Jesus does. I shared a couple of them with you last week. This week I will share my favorite because maybe like you, I've had a little bit of an unpleasant week. Have you had an unpleasant week in any form? Has it just been amazing for all of you? You're a lot more fortunate than the first service. I asked that question at the first service, and there was this kind of wave of agreement that, yeah, that generally speaking, the week was kind of terrible. If yours wasn't, good for you. Congratulations. Maybe give us lessons. Uh, Tell me how you did it. But I had some unpleasant moments this week. So this truth that I'm going to share with you from the book of Hebrews intermittently comforted me all week long. It only did so intermittently because I very often, I say this to my own embarrassment as a confession, I often stopped thinking, stopped evidently believing the very thing I was studying. Every time my mind came back to what I'm about to share with you, I felt God's peace, I found courage, I found hope, I found life. As my mind drifted from the promises of God and the present work of Jesus on my behalf and I started focusing my attention on myself, I could feel my spirits drop. Think about it, if I'm thinking about myself, no wonder I'm depressed, right? A lot of problems represented up here in front of this pulpit. The book of Hebrews gives us the primary answer of what Jesus is doing for us. The trouble is, the book of Hebrews requires us to go back in time and culture quite a great distance. Let me tell you about it. I have in weeks past, so I won't belabor it, but let me remind you why the book of Hebrews was written. It was almost certainly a sermon. It's circulating as an epistle, but it appears to be a sermon that was reduced to writing. It has that strange, ancient-sounding name, Hebrews, because it was addressed to Jewish believers and Jewish skeptics and Jewish investigators of Christ in the first century. The testimony of Jesus and the testimony of the apostles is that in Jesus, God had kept His final and best promise to send a Messiah, send a Savior for Israel who would be God with them who would keep all of God's law, who would stand in the gap between a holy God and His sinful people, and He would be the payment for their sins. He would be their good shepherd. He would be their redeemer. He would be their advocate. He would one day rule over them. That message had been given very clearly, so clearly that many, many Jewish believers in the first century had sprouted up not only in Jerusalem but all across the Roman Empire. Some biblical scholars, if memory serves, estimate that as many as one-half of the people in Jerusalem had become Christians by the time the apostles were done preaching there and were driven out by Roman persecution. If you read the book of Acts, the apostles are named angrily by their opponents as people who turned the whole world upside down. The witness to Jesus, the witness about Jesus from these first believers, from Jesus' first disciples, from his apostles, had really changed the landscape of the known world at that time. And because of that, persecution had begun to rear its ugly head and had started crushing crashing down through social pressure, through government restrictions on these Jewish believers. The persecution had grown so intense that though they had not yet been martyred, that was still in the near future, they were really starting to pay a price for it. And many of them, under social pressure, have done what Christians throughout history have done and through many who are not yet Christians have done they've taken a step back. They had the temple. They had the synagogue. They had the law and the prophets and the psalms read to them Sabbath by Sabbath. They have a priesthood. They have traditions. They have family gatherings. They have meals to remember their history. They're acculturated into Judaism. So many of them are thinking about Not taking another step with Jesus, stepping back from trusting Him, not trusting in Him at all. And Hebrews, from start to finish, is a long warning and encouragement to not do that. It is the preaching of Jesus. Again, I think it's a sermon saying that Jesus, the one you've been trusting or the one you've at least been considering, He's it, He's the one. He's the one God promised. The prophets themselves say so. Everything in our history teaches us that we can't save ourselves. He's the only one who can. He's the only one who will. If you don't trust Him, you're completely out of God's favor. No one else is coming. No other offer, no other escape is possible. Stick with Jesus. Hold on. We're going to read in a moment. Hold on to your confession. You've confessed, some of you publicly, you've named yourselves as Christians, you've expressed your personal trust in Jesus, hang on to it. But from first chapter to last, the argument of Hebrews is that Jesus is just better, that he's superior. He's greater than the angels, he's greater than Moses. He's greater than Aaron, their first and great high priest. He's better in every way. So if you step away from him, you're lost. That is the argument of Hebrews, and it's a hard reading because it deals so much with culture and scripture that Jews knew very well. We're overhearing someone's sermon dedicated to people, preached and written to people from a culture very unlike our own. I want you to keep that in mind because all we're going to be reading about in the few verses I'm going to share with you regards the priesthood. Why the priesthood? Because Israel lived permanently in a priesthood, a permanent reminder that they themselves and their sinfulness were not acceptable to God and for that matter neither was their priest. Their priest, even their high priest, offered continually sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of Israel. In all of the furnishings of the temple, beautiful and immaculate as it was furnished in the original and later in the temple that Herod built, all of it was beautiful. But one piece of missing furniture in the temple was a chair. The priest, all the priests, including the high priest, were permanently standing, a visual reminder that their work would never be done until God sent the Messiah. And that is the book of Hebrews, and that leads us into what Jesus is doing for us now. And the answer, as I told you last week, everything that Jesus is doing for us, the answer is always found in His resurrection and what Jesus is doing for you right now at this very moment while you listen to me preach, while you read your Bible or your mind drifts to the traffic beside us, or you ask yourself, isn't He getting a little hot since He doesn't have shade as I do? No, I'm fine. Thank you very much. Whatever you're doing, whether you're focused or not, here is what Jesus is doing for you. Jesus is interceding for you. Jesus is speaking to the Father on your behalf. In simpler language, what is Jesus doing right now? Jesus is praying for you. It's amazing. And it is one of the main themes in the book of Hebrews. Look with me, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. Here's the priestly talk. Here's the superiority of Jesus. Hebrews 7, verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood, how? Permanently. He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. That's the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus will always be a priest unto God, a priest in our favor because he died once and will never die again. His life goes on forever. Read it again. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost. Very interesting phrase. If you're the kind to underline in your Bible and to make notes, this is worth noting. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to do what? To make intercession for them. Let me be crystal clear. If you have come to God through the name and trusting in the work, the death and the resurrection of His Son, what Jesus is doing for you right now is interceding for you. If you have not yet put your trust in Christ, He's not doing that for you. Not yet. Jesus always lives. Jesus eternally lives from this point forward. To save to the uttermost, and I'll talk to you about what that phrase means. To save completely, to save utterly, to save at every moment all of those who draw near to God through Him. If you're still investigating Jesus, if you're like these persecuted Jews in the first century who have not yet made up their mind about Jesus, This is a picture and a promise of what Jesus will do for you, but he will only begin to intercede for you. He will only be your advocate. He will only be your priest. He will only be your satisfaction before a holy and righteous God at the moment you draw near to God through him. It says here that Jesus always lives to make intercession for them. The point that the author of Hebrews is making is he is the only one we will ever need. We will never need another priest. We will never need another advocate. There is no human being. There is no saint. There is no one else beside Jesus or necessary other than Jesus. He is the one we need. Look at this passage again, please. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. He's talking to actual people in the first century. If they were elderly or had memory of what their parents and their grandparents had told them about the priesthood, they probably could have named two or three or four great high priests that they had. They remembered with fondness perhaps some of the priests that had represented them in the temple once a year going into the Holy of Holies. The author of Hebrews says, we've needed a lot of these men because they're continually dying. Jesus is different. Because He rose from the dead, because He lives forever, He has taken up the priesthood and He's done it permanently. It's one of the many limitations, the many differences between Jesus and anybody else who would represent Him. Secondly, He's the only one who can do this for people. Look at what it says in the next two verses. It was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Let me read you again who Jesus is. He functions as a high priest. In other words, as someone who offers a sacrifice, who stands between people Sinful people and a holy God, and here is what He is like He is holy, He is innocent, He is unstained, He is separated from sinners, and He is exalted above the heavens. Let me ask you have you ever known anybody like that? Have you? No. I'm not a priest, I'm a pastor. The reason for that is Jesus is the priest. But even though I'm not a priest, people who didn't grow up in church and don't know much about it have really, it's become clear to me over the years of being a pastor, have really strange ideas of what a pastor or a priest or a member of the clergy is and does. I guess we seem, I don't know, weird for sure, otherworldly maybe. This really came home to me for the first time years ago when I was in Bible college, I had shared the gospel with a man who's still in our church all these years later. He'd had a pretty rough upbringing. He'd, been, he'd suffered some abuse at the hands of religious people, so he's suspicious of God, and anybody who spoke of him seemed to know anything or care about God or present themselves publicly as someone who could talk about God. So it's really a miracle, as it always is, that Jesus saved him. But he was still suspicious, and he still found this whole thing very strange, so we, dis- we started a process that we could call biblically discipleship. We just started meeting once a week, and I started teaching in the basics of reading his Bible, praying to God the basics of his newfound faith in Christ. And I'll never forget the first question he asked me. We went to lunch at one of the good Mexican joints here in Huntington Beach, and right in the middle of the chips and salsa, he leaned across and said, Bruce, I have a question. Yes, of course. What is it? He looked at me with utter sincerity and said, are you ever, like, tempted? Yeah, you're laughing because you know me. You know the answer. He didn't. I said, yes, of course, constantly, every day, all kinds of stuff. And he sagged back in the booth and said, oh, thank goodness, you're human. (laughs) That's the very point of the Son of God becoming an actual ordinary human being as I'm going to show you. He stood in our place. He lived our actual experience. All of our human frailties, including suffering, every temptation, just as we do. And yet, because He's the Son of God, because He's God who took on a human nature, look who He is. He's a high priest who is holy, who is innocent who is unstained, who is separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. There's absolutely no one like him. No one you've ever met. No pastor, no priest, no one who knows Jesus well. However well they know him is in any way very much like him because he is so superior. The whole point of you being given the life of Christ is for you to become like Christ. I was praising you and encouraging you earlier because I've seen so many of you act like Jesus and grow into the likeness of Jesus. But compared to Jesus, it will literally take heaven to make us as He is because He is Listen to it again. He's holy. He's innocent. He's unstained. He's separated from sinners. He, he's exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests who offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this. He offered a sacrifice, in other words, once for all when he offered up, what? Himself. Jesus is so superior that He's not only the priest, He's not only the final, the best and the only priest, He's also the sacrifice. Though He had no sins of His own, He brought Himself to the Father. That's why He's able to intercede for us. That's why it says in the first passage I read you that He will save us to the uttermost because He always lives to intercede for us. He will save us completely and at all times. That's what it means when it says to the uttermost. I'm in Hebrews chapter 7. I'm in verse 25. Let me read it to you again. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Why is Jesus able to completely and absolutely and at all times save the people who trust Him because He's always interceding for us? There's absolutely no one like Him. The person who loves you most, your biggest fan, your chief advocate, doesn't always intercede for you. For one thing, they get tired. They physically rest. They get tired of you, too. I don't know if you've noticed. The people who love you most on earth get a little tired of you, need to go for a drive, need to go to the grocery store by themselves need some time to turn off the lights and turn on the fan and be left alone. This high priest, he is nearer to you than you can even imagine. So near to you that the eternal, uncreated Son of God became a human being, took your actual place, took your actual nature Upon Himself added to His divine nature a human nature so that He could understand not only from the point of view of the Creator but through actual human experience every one of your temptations, every one of your frailties, every bit of your human limitation up to and including thirst and hunger and suffering and yes, even death. And then He took His life back and returned to the Father who sent Him And sits enthroned at the right hand of God to rule, as I told you last week, and as he rules, what he is continually doing is saving you to the uttermost. Here's a question for you, Christian. When do you need saving? Oh, it got quiet. That was a good question. When do you need saving? All the time. See, we speak, and this is good biblical language, He got saved. As if it were a one moment in time, never to be repeated, never needed again. No, He is able to save us to the uttermost, meaning... That that Greek phrase meaning He is able to save us completely. He is able to save us at all times, at every moment, in your frailty, in your weakness, in your sinfulness, you have a high priest who not only understands you, in His understanding of you, He loves you, and because He knows your need of Him and your need of grace, He is continually interceding for you. That's why Hebrews goes on to say, this, in Hebrews chapter 4. Notice now we're back, go, going back three chapters. This is how strongly the idea of priesthood runs through the book of Hebrews. Listen to the practical effect of what I just told you. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Because this high priest isn't going into the Holy of Holies. Not on earth. He's going into the very throne room of God. He's not passing behind a veil made by other human hands. No, this high priest has passed through the heavens. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. In other words, let's keep claiming Him. Let's keep owning our Christianity. Let's keep being unashamed of our trust in Him. That's what a confession is. Here's the encouragement. Here's the reason why we hold fast to Jesus even when and especially when it gets tough to do so. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Read verse 16 with me. There's what we're supposed to do with all this. Hebrews 4, 16. Will you read it with me? The Bible says, Let us then... With confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Listen. Using the picture of the holy of holies, the author of Hebrews here is taking an earthly thing that they were very familiar with the Holy of Holies, the place where the great high priest and even he could only go in once a year. And he sang the final high priest, the real high priest, the priest that was sent not from a human family that you could meet and have lunch with, but the one who was sent by God himself, he passed through the heavens. And though he came from the heavens and returned to the Father, he knows all about you all your weaknesses, all your frailty, all of your temptations. He understands it because he lived it, but he did it without sin. So now you can do something extraordinary. You can draw near to the throne of a holy, righteous God who knows everything about you, who knows every half-hearted, every wrong, sinful, selfish, shameful thing. The God who knows all about you, the throne of His authority has been changed for you. It is now a throne of… Did you notice how the throne of God is described here? It's a throne of what? Of grace. Wow. Why? Because Jesus went there for you. Now you can go with confidence to the throne of grace and there you can receive mercy and you can always find grace to help in the time of need. Let me make this as personal as I can for you. The same book of Hebrews that I'm reading to you talks in another place about a besetting or an entangling sin, sin that clings closely to us. Does that make sense to you? Don't tell anybody else. Don't react. Because if you do this with me, if you take this little journey with me and you try to make the Word of God very practical, this is going to be pretty intimate. It's going to be vulnerable. It can be kind of intense for you. If there is a besetting sin, if there is a sin that continually entangles people, do you know what yours is? Is there a habit, a defect in your character, something that continually trips you up? Is there something about you, the way you think, the things you do, the secret life that you live because we all have a secret life? Are there things in that secret life that would absolutely wreck you with embarrassment if it were known by others, even the people who love you the most? You got that? That entangling sin, Jesus endured the temptation to that very thing He was tempted in His human nature far more strongly than you ever have been because temptations are a little bit like ocean waves. If you're not very strong, it doesn't take much to knock you over. Jesus was tempted in all ways just as we are. We can read of occasions in his life at the beginning of his ministry and in his final hours where Jesus was tempted and accosted by Satan himself. In other words, the very worst things in your human nature We're not present in the human nature of Jesus, but those same solicitations to sin, to trust himself, to put himself first, to lie, to get outside the Father's plan, to indulge himself rather than obey the Father, and those simple phrases describe every kind of sin that you and I have ever indulged in. Jesus felt that fully, but he endured it without sin. And he's not unsympathetic because he knows what it feels like. He knows everything about it except what it feels like to be defeated by sin. He triumphed over sin. He took your besetting sin and crushed it with his righteous obedience. And then he took all of his righteousness and presented it to the Father, and that's why the throne of God is now to you a throne of grace, and that's why there you can find mercy and you can find grace to help you in your time of need. In other words, when you're falling short, when you don't know what to do, when you've done the stupid, sinful, embarrassing, shameful thing for the 10,000th time, and you think there's no more hope for you, and if Jesus is anything like the pastor says, and he actually knows all. About you. There's no way he could possibly love you because you know full well who you are. Jesus knows all of that and more, and he loves you still, and so does the Father. And Jesus, in light of your great need, saves you to the uttermost. And one of the ways He does it continually is not only did He die for you, not only did He rise from the dead for you to give you His own eternal life, even now at this very moment, Jesus is praying for you. Amazing. Now, one question, because it's inevitable, and I often hear this misrepresented or at least pastors use careless language to give people the bad impre- a bad impression, a bad and unbiblical impression. I think if we could examine what most of us who came to church to Crosspoint in these two services actually think about God, if people were crystal clear and verbalized their actual beliefs or at least their feelings about God, it would sound something like this. Jesus loves me, but the Father He kind of tolerates me. I know Jesus loves me because they taught me a song about it when I was a child. Jesus loves me, this I know. You know the song? We'll sing it before we go home, okay? But the Father, because He's holy, because He's righteous, because as the same book of Hebrews says, all things are naked and exposed to the sight of Him to whom we must give an account The son loves me. The father, he's a lot like an earthly father. He's kind of drumming his celestial fingers in impatience saying, you again? So here's the question. Does the fact that Jesus always lives to make intercession for the people who'd come to the father through him, does this mean that God the father is always upset with us and needs constant reminding by Jesus not to condemn us? Because I've actually heard preaching that sounds almost like that. The father is on his throne with a lightning bolt in his hand, just barely holding off the urge to smite you. But the only reason he does it is because the son is enthroned beside him saying, father, please remember I died for them. And he needs persuading and he needs convincing and he needs Reminding. If you entertain that kind of thought, you'll never really love your father fully because it's hard to fully love someone you know is barely putting up with you. Here's the truth and take it from Jesus. Listen to Jesus in John 16 just before dying. Jesus said in John chapter 16, the father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that i came from god i came from the father and have come i came from the father and have come into the world and now i am leaving the world and going to the father focus on and believe that first phrase the father himself loves you the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and you have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and I've come into the world and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. And by the way, why, do you, why is he returning to the Father? To intercede for you, to pray for you. Let's put these two ideas together. Jesus is interceding for you because the Father loves you. He doesn't read reminding. He doesn't need persuading. The Father Himself loves you, and Father sends the Son. The Son dies for sin and sinners. The Son takes His life back, gives eternal life to all who trust Him, and lives even now continually praying for people who trust Him, all because the Father loves us. Jesus is interceding for us because God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loves us. And here's the final step, because this has all been literally otherworldly. I mean, we've been in the highest and holiest place of heaven. We've been talking about the throne of God. We've been talking about an uncreated, eternal God, loving, little, old, mortal, sinful, frail us. Here's the question. So what? How can this possibly help you? What difference will this make for you? Here's Three very simple ideas that I want you to take home to face your difficult week with the knowledge that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit love you. Here's the first thing. Jesus prays for you even when you don't pray at all. I've been asking Christians who are farther ahead of me in following Jesus for 20 years about their prayer life. I've never had anybody say, I'm satisfied with my prayer life it seems that the holier, the better, the more sincere the Christian, the quicker they are to admit their weakness in prayer. How often they forget to pray, how often they get distracted in prayer, how often they grow discouraged in prayer. It's a real struggle. It is comforting to me and it should be comforting to you to know that Jesus is praying for you even when you don't pray at all. When you're not paying any attention to God, when you in a manner of speaking, have dethroned God from the throne of your life and insisted on running your own show and doing whatever you want. When your motives are rotten and even when your good deeds aren't quite right because you're doing the right thing for the wrong reason and you're doing the right thing so that other people will say, did you notice he did the right thing? What a wonderful person that is. When you're doing all of that at every moment, including while you rest and your human frailty has lulled you into sleep, at every and every moment, Jesus is praying for you. I can't begin to tell you what it did for me as I came out here to preach to know that the entire time I'm preaching… However it's going, good or bad, whether I'm making sense or not, whether I'm going, getting through to the congregation or not, at every moment Jesus is praying for me and Jesus is praying for you. That's why you're saved to the uttermost. Listen to Robert Murray McShane, a saint from a couple hundred years ago, reflect on this. McShane wrote, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. You imagine what it might be like to hear Jesus praying for you? That's quite a word picture. If Jesus, hidden from your sight, were in the next room, but praying so loudly with the door open that you could hear his prayers for you, McShane could say, if I could hear him pray for me, I wouldn't fear a million enemies. But here's the blessed thing, distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. He's praying for me in the best place, the throne room of God, at the right hand of His Father. He is praying to the Father who already loves me, who in fact loved me so much that He sent the Son for me. Go back to Romans 8. Read it for yourself. Romans chapter 8, listen. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, with Jesus, graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is left to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed, present tense, is interceding for us. He died. That's history. He rose. That's history. He is interceding for us. That's happening right now. So, Paul, in the midst of his own persecution, with the scars and the cost reflected on his own body, says from his own suffering, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? In other words, if they starve us, if they kill us, if our family abandons us, if we go hungry, if they murder us, will that separate us from the love of Christ? That was the experience of the first century church. That's why it says, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, Paul says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Read the rest of the passage with me from verse 38. Paul wrote, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What do you have? You have the love of Christ. That's in the first part. What do you have? You have the love of God in Christ. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit love you, and that means you can always come to God with complete confidence. You are a creation of God, you are a servant of God, but much more blessedly, through the sacrifice, death, resurrection, and intercession of His Son, you are a beloved child of God and the only people who can enter the throne room with utter confidence are the King's kids. Everybody else needs an appointment. Everybody else goes in with a cringing respect that if they say or do the wrong thing in an ancient throne room, they'll be cast right out of there, maybe out of the kingdom, maybe out of life itself. We can come to the throne room of God knowing that the throne for us is a throne of grace where we will find mercy, meaning favor we don't deserve in God's great love. And you never have to wonder if you are accepted or heard or loved. Those of us with besetting sins, and I'm sure that's each and every one of us, if we're humble and honest with ourselves, there are things we're tired of doing. There are ways we are tired of acting. There are things we are tired of being. And that has created in us the impression that God is a little tired of us and that He's going to save us but barely. And we're going to get to heaven and He's going to say, well, about time, you didn't do me good while you were on earth. Somehow, in God's great grace, all of your failures, all of your sin, all of your frailty is absorbed by the saving life of His Son who lives even now to intercede for you. So, yes, you are accepted. Yes, you always will be heard, even when you're wrong, even when you're a mile off, even when you're utterly selfish, even in those moments. Not only will Jesus hear you, Jesus will intercede for you. And at all times and in all ways, you'll only know how well and how completely once we get to heaven, in all moments you are loved. You are saved to the uttermost because Jesus is always praying for you. Let's pray together and let's pray to Him. While I pray aloud, I just want you to think of one great glorious truth. Because Jesus is the Son of God, while you pray to Him, while I pray to Him, He will be praying for each of us. He'll be presenting in love his intercession, his person, his advocacy to his father who already loved us. That's why it says God shows his love toward us in this way. He sent his son to die for us while we were still sinners. That's how loved you are. Jesus, I thank you that even as we've navigated through these hard passages this whole time, this entire time you've been praying for us. When we're prayerless and sinful, you are ever interceding and perfectly holy and righteous, and you give all that righteousness permanently, eternally, in our place so that we will always be accepted and loved, not tolerated, but cherished, beloved, Scripture says amazing things like you you sing songs over us because you love us. If there's a single person here who doesn't know you as Savior, I pray that they would turn to you right now. And friend, if there is, if you're watching online or you're here in the tent, Jesus is the only one who can save you. I trust I made that clear. If you don't know Him, turn to Him and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. Give me Your grace. Please forgive my sins. Make these promises that this man's been talking about. Make them true for me. And he will. And if you do, let us know. Send us a text. Send me an email. Let us know with the card that's in your bulletin. Please, if you don't know Christ, come to him for intercession. Come to him for his substitution, for his life lived in your place, and he'll save you. It's not about you. It never has been. It's always and only Jesus. And Christian, if you have all this, he's already gone ahead of you. He's already in heaven, giving you the assurance that you'll be there with him someday, always and only living to intercede for you. Lord Jesus, thank you. If there's a single person here who doesn't know you, I pray that today they would be saved and they would let us know, and that the rest of us would go forward into this week, which may be difficult, with the absolute confidence that whatever we face... Whatever we do, whatever they do to us, you will always be praying for us. Thank you. We love you. In Christ's name I pray. Crosspoint said, amen. How much does he love you? He prays for you. We're always looking for people to pray for us. That's good. We're told to do that. If no one else prays for you, if you have no words to pray for yourself, go forward this week with the confidence that Jesus is praying for you. If you're new to our church, I'd love to get acquainted. I'll be on the, on the church porch. I'll meet you over there, and I'll walk you over to this new cool little room we call the living room. God bless you. Thank you for joining us for worship. Remember, next week, where are we? We're back in the house, baby. We are the church, but we're going back in the building. God bless you. Love you. Bye-bye.